Warning. The following podcast contains major spoilers for Netflix's series of unfortunate events and minor spoilers for the book series. And welcome to Box Not Included, the show looking at geek culture and the media we love and loathe from a queer perspective. I'm Jade, an ornamental rock usually green in colour and often used in jewellery and art, in this case referring to your podcast host of ambiguous gender, Rose. (laughs) And I'm Hamish, a word which here means James in Scotland, steel. I like how we went for the same kind of vibe there. It was good. (laughs) I'm not going to admit to how much time I spent figuring out the exact wording of that, because that would be embarrassing. (laughs) In today's episode, it is with a heavy heart that we delve into the various fraudulent details of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, the brand new Netflix series, as well as the original books. Due to the fact that our world is filled with criminals, spies and terrible, terrible, terrible actors, we cannot risk being seen discussing the tragic lives of the Baudelaire orphans together, which is why Hamish is here via Skype. I tried communicating through an intricate system of tin can phones, carrier ravens and subliminal back massages, but I realised I was in fact too lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's quickly set up uh, what we're all talking about for those who don't know. Listeners of a sensitive nature, particularly where the fate of children are concerned, this may not be the episode for you. Yeah, I'm sorry for being <laughs> such a snicket. I don't know what the term for Lemony Snicket fans are. No, neither do um, I. People who have made bad choices in their media consumption or something. <laughs> I don't know. I there's probably I, an anagram. I was going to say, that's probably how he'd um, describe it. But uh... um, uh, ve- uh, uh, Ferociously fanatical devotees. Maybe. Or something. Maybe. Well, I just twigged <laughs> um, what so you did yes. there. Very clever. Yeah. I always twig a, a couple of lines after and then go, uh-huh, uh, yeah. Uh. Anyway, so yeah. Um, the Lemony Snicket series, franchise, books, film, and television program mm-hmm. um, is obviously being talked about recently. Um I guess, I would, uh, do you want to, who, do, who wants to sort of just brief what it is? Um, I? I, um, I can, I, I pulled up the Wikipedia page for the sake of, I, I, I'm oh. loath to use the word accuracy with regards to Wikipedia, but it is a very useful tool. But um, originally, Series of Unfortunate Events is a series of 13 children novels, children's novels by um, Lemony Snicket, which is in fact a a pen name. I was devastated when I found that out. Um, But it follows the turbulent (laughs) lives of Violet, Klaus and Sonny Baudelaire after their parents' death in a fire and their various adventures trying to stay out of the clutches of a murderous relative who wants to get his hands on their fortune. And there's lots of interesting stuff around secret societies and all manner of exciting mysteries and lots of dead people. Yeah, so where have so let's talk because we don't know you know I'm a very big fan. I do, yeah. But I don't I I don't know anything about your connection to these books. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things. Um 
for considering the very the the vibe of the uh, the books with their sort of pseudo Victorian kind of aesthetic, and the fact that there's lots of fourth wall breaking and they're very meta, I've only read one of them, um, mm-hmm. and I I was I got it out of the library where I was living at the time. I know I was you know I was younger than I am now and therefore shorter. Uh, <laughs> Um, I read, where is it gone? Because, uh, I read the Austere Academy. That's the only one uh-huh. I've read because I uh-huh. like stories set in boarding schools or I, I did at that point in my life. So, um, and I thought, huh, this is cool. I think I read that one probably because they didn't have the first one. And I thought it was really interesting, but I never really picked up any others, but I really enjoyed the film when it came out. But that really is the extent. It's one of those things I feel I should probably read now as an adult because I like so much of what it's about. It is one of those things where hindsight is really uh, one of those things going, wow, I really wish I'd found these uh, books when I was younger because I feel they would have really made an impression on me. And I sort of feel they probably would have been very formative, whereas looking at them now, it's sort of like, wow, these books are kind of just sort of made for, I hesitate to say my aesthetic, but my (laughs) weirdo fourth fourth wall breaking Adam's family loving self. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things... I, I'm rabbiting on to a point. Um, what about you? Why why do you like them so much? What um, drew you to them? Um, I was not much a reader as a child, um, and in a weird way, I I uh, oh, like I never I never really read Harry Potter, and I didn't really have any kind of formative book uh, series or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and a friend of mine uh, gave me the first three um, as a present. Mm-hmm. And it was at a strange time in our friendship when his mother had recently died. And all the sort of friends' parents were being a bit awkward about it. And we'd all had to go over to like have play dates at his house, but in a really forced make sure you're nice kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I was like, never ever mention parents or anything at all. And then he gave me these three books about, uh, you know, children whose parents both die horribly. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it, he said, I just think they're really funny and interesting. And I, I just kind of, it was a great moment when all the parents were being, uh, completely ridiculous and not listening to what the children were wanting oh the children the children were dealing with these you know quite sad things in with a kind of dark humorous edge Mm. um so it kind of definitely arrived at the right time and i found the way they were written um i'd never read anything with a sort of narrator like that before where the Mm. narrator isn't a character in the book but they're a character themselves um, so it really felt like someone was telling you a story and it's so, so much of the way the books are written where it sort of explains words, but 
in a kind of satirical way, which isn't always the real meaning. It's a kind of an opinionated meaning of the word. And the way the books like just drop spoilers really early on. And it just, it really did everything that I found. uh, It kind of solved all the problems I found frustrating about reading. Mm. Um, I then, I did listen to the audio books for a bunch of them. The first three were read by Tim Curry and, Uh. um, they they all they then they were written read by Daniel Handler who is Lemmy Snicket mm. and um, they all started with really weird songs which exact sounds exactly like the type of one the Netflix show has as its theme song oh that's brilliant um, and they were like filled with spoilers for the book and I just found that really funny mm-hmm. when you start a book and it says this character will die in chapter four <laughs> and like you know it just. <laughs> It just really appealed to me in a lot of ways. And um, that was definitely the the first but possibly only book series I really followed and got as soon as they came out and read sort of covered together. Because yeah. I still find reading quite tough. Yeah, no, they're definitely um, something I'd like to read. What I might do is um, pitch to my sister that um, I get to read them to my niece so we can discover cool. them together. But then, you know... You'd do... My sister, Many great voices. Oh, I tell you what, my sister is amazing. Like I, I've sat in on bedtime a couple of times with my niece and mm. um, it's really cool because to get off topic for a moment, our dad read to us when we were small and while after I stopped, cause I, probably because I decided I wanted to read by myself because I read, I'm a voracious reader, so I probably got to the point where I'd rather read by myself, but I've got lots of memories of being in my own bedroom reading to myself and hearing my dad read to my sister in the next room. And I have more mm. clear memories of that than I do of him reading to me. But oh, that's really sweet. I know, but hearing my sister do the same for my niece and doing voices and stuff, it just makes my heart ache in the best possible way because I'm just like, oh, the written word. Because <laughs> you know, but um, um, yeah, I might pitch that to my sister, and if not, I'll just when my niece is of a sensitive disposition, bless her, she worries about people and things, so they might need to wait till she's a little bit older. But yeah, I'm gonna try and get in on that, uh, on that story time action. So, but well, um, um mm. The, this, the books have a lot of different themes and yeah. ideas. And um, one of them, which sometimes I think, I sometimes struggle with a little bit, mm. is the kind of intellectual versus the non-intellectual yeah. kind of idea. Um, I recently saw someone, uh, it was a post on Tumblr, where they're talking about a parent not liking the show because it's all about how parents are stupid. I rebugged that earlier today. I feel it's far like yeah, it's it is far more about people not listening to each other. Yeah. Um and many 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 of the people who are the stupid parents are highly educated masters in their field and it's kind of about I feel because the Baudelaire orphans are sort of odd main characters because I don't think I'd really like them in real life. I'd find them quite obnoxious and uh uh, see, I, I was that kind of, I mean, I wasn't wealthy or anything like that, but I was yeah. that kind of, I have read this in a book, ego, I know what to do. I was that yeah. child. So, but, um, 
But I, I, I would. No, Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, no, I appreciate what you're saying about the intellect because it, though I what I like about the books is unlike the adults in the stories, they don't talk down to children because they're children. It's sort yeah. of they appreciate you're either going to be you're either going to understand this or you're not. I'm just going to give you the information and give it to you. Yeah, I mean the the books um, the uh, the whole a word which here means blah 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 is sounds like it's very patronizing until you sort of get the sort of sarcastic nature of it. Yeah, and so so often he's describing a word he assumes the reader, the child reader will know so that his description is satirical and funny. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I just think that they are a very unique work. Like mm. I'm not, I don't know anything really about um, the history of how it got published, but I do wonder what kind of conversations were had about yeah. the type because it's written so strangely. I can't think of anything quite like it. Not where the narrator is so sort of, I mean, I'm not saying that isn't work like it. I'm just, I don't know. I suppose maybe Into the Woods is a musical example of like a narrator who sort of gets woven into the narrative almost. And I think Ter mm. uh, the Terry Pratchett books have got a similar sort of sensibility like, yeah, I suppose I don't want to. It's not the same, but I think maybe there's you could say there's sort of a kinship there in the way that the author approaches the reader and also the subjects, which mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I mean, know. something that can be said. I watched, um, we'll go on to the series, the TV series in a bit, but I mm. watched that with my brother who's never read the books and oh, yeah. he has seen the film, he's seen the film. Um, and he did say something which I think is true which is the series isn't really about characters um, The there's not much space in the books or the show for you to really sit down and um, get a lot of time with the Baudelaire orphans hmm. that's a very valid observation and I'm immediately struck by why do I like it as much as I do then because I'm a very character-focused person. But maybe, it, especially with the the visual medium, I don't know, maybe it's just an empathy thing coming into play. But I've not, I've not really considered that before, that we spend so much time with them, yet we don't necessarily know too much of their inner workings. I mean, if the narration was from the point of view of them the stories would be very different but because we have this this because we have lemony snicket there he tells us about the characters mm. that's such an interesting thought huh um sorry if i cut out then <laughs> it's okay if it happens again I, I i it happened earlier when we were talking about impressions books i'm just like i'll keep talking until he pops back so it's all good. It's all Sorry. good. It's fine. Uh, everyone, everyone's listening. We can't be too careful. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I think it came. The series came at a time when I assume a lot of children's publishers were looking for the next Harry Potter. Mm. And whenever people are looking for the next anything, um, the thing that becomes the next big thing is always the thing that is nothing like. 
that thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm recently uh, in the TV world. Everyone's looking for the next Game of Thrones. Anyone trying any like pitch document that starts with it's like the Game of Thrones of blank. It won't be as big as Game of Thrones. Yeah. It needs to be something that's very original and can be for the people who maybe not be won over by Harry Potter or uh, it doesn't connect with them in the same way. For sure. Did you want to start maybe talking about the adaptation slash adaptations? Yeah, I mean, might talk a little bit about uh, the film as I said, that was really my main sort of exposure to this world. Although I had read that one book, as I, as I said, I mm. love the aesthetic of the of the movie. I thought I I want for all that it was a very bleak world. It was I always know it's a sign of good production design if I want to go rummaging. If I'm like, mm. I also wanted to steal all the costumes, which to be fair is a frequent problem I have. But I liked it. I thought the characters were interesting. I liked um, the performances in it. And I'm looking forward to talking about the ones in the TV series as well. Mm. But I know I felt very, uh, because I, I wasn't familiar with the books, for me, I didn't have that herd, that adaption hurdle. I mean, yeah. and I didn't know enough about film analysis when I watched it. I mean, if I was to watch it now, my opinion might be different. But I just remember thinking, this is such an interesting world. And I think I'd already watched the point where I got to my I don't like Jude Law thing. So I didn't particularly like him as Lemony Snicket. But I liked that presence of the narrator. And yeah, I just mm. I just enjoyed it. And I'm a big fan of Jim Carrey, which is probably I thought I think I remember seeing the trailer for Series of Unfortunate Events and going, I don't know what that is, because maybe I'd forgotten the book, but I want to see it now. So I think possibly because it reminded me a little bit of the Adams family as well, like with the visuals. Mm. Well, we've spoken twice about the Adams family and mm. Barry Sonnenfield, who um, I think directed the first uh, Adam's Family and produced Adam's mm. Family Values. Yeah, um, produced both the movie and directed and produced the Netflix series. Yeah, I did see his name on the um, opening credits. I was like, ah, this is going to be good. So I am feeling confident. With dirty, spooky houses, slightly unconvincing babies, and Joan Cusack, I was very happy because <laughs> it felt very Adam's Family Values, which is among my favorite films. Yeah, um, yeah, the. The, the Series of Unfortunate Events film is something I frequently defend and bring up as an example of how to adapt something well mm -hmm. if, if you do not have the ability to adapt it faithfully. Yeah. Um, it is very faithful. And if you watch the film and the Netflix series, you realize a lot of... I will get onto Netflix series soon... But a lot of the struggle I did have with the Netflix series was just being so familiar with the film. Mm. And because they're both quite uh, um, I've completely forgotten the most important world we're talking about. Faithful. Because they're go. both quite faithful. Um, you end up seeing a lot of the same scenes and it's a bit awkward when you know that everyone's just trying to do a slightly different performance. Even if it can't be better. Anyway, the 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 film uh, obviously adapts three of the books in one. 
Um, and I just think it does a really good job. And I'm, I was sad at the time that it really felt like they weren't ever going to make any more. Yeah. But with being at peace with the fact that it is being adapted again. Um, but also I rewatched it recently and it's so clearly that it doesn't even really need, doesn't even seem like it wants to be like have sequels. It's a very complete film. It yeah. sort of um, ends on a note, which is they will continue to have these series of unfortunate events, but they, at least they have each other, mm. um, which is a kind of a nice way to give the film an ending, even if it won't have sequels, but leave it open enough in case it does. Mm. No, agree. Um, but I, yeah, I adore the way the film looks. And um, it is one of those things that makes you sort of clench your fists and yell at the ceiling, aesthetic. Yeah, like the so one of my favorite scenes in the film is the one which is completely invented for the film, mm. which is when they're trapped in the car on the um, train lines. Oh yeah, and one of the most amazing things about that scene is that it's all just shot in a studio, and um, the behind the scenes stuff for that film is amazing. And you can the director um, follows the train tracks down where it shrinks to show distance and. Mm the whole of that outdoors is really, really small. <laughs> it's just filmed so well. And um, yeah, I'm very pleased with it. And so I, like, I never ever thought, I thought that would be it. Mm. I never thought we'd get to see an adaptation of 13 books in any way. And then along came Netflix. <laughs> along came Netflix. As many tragic uh, franchise stories seem to mm. end with... Along came Netflix and saved the day. Yeah. Um, so. Speaking of Netflix. Let, let's talk about the Netflix series. Let's. Um, so I haven't done too much research on this. I can safely state for the record that it covers the first four books. Mm-hmm. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. I love, I've loved being part of the hype coming up to it. The, um, and as things got revealed with the process and the trade, I remember when the trailer dropped, the proper trailer um, yes. with Lemony Snicket. And I was just like, oh, they, I think they've got it. And I remember how excited everybody was. And then it arrived and I was quite lucky. I, I found myself with, a, I was going to say, a free Sunday. This was what I liked. I was able to do the whole <laughs> thing in a day. It was great. But I am very much loving it and while I have some minor issues with it I think it's very well made I think it's gorgeous to look at I think I saw this really great tweet that made me cackle which was uh, the series of unfortunate events series is what happens when children from a Wes Anderson movie end up in a Tim Burton movie (laughs) and I thought (laughs) that's just like the way the children are dressed compared to the surroundings. And I saw um, a great quote. Uh, it was Daniel Handler talking about how why the film looks the way it does and it's how to do with like, how children's perception of the world and their memory, which is why you only ever see a single trolley on the car, uh, yeah. on the tracks, because that's how you remember it and that sort of shewed perspective that children have. And I thought, oh, that's clever. Oh, that's so very clever. And Yeah, um, there's a... No, you... 
Well, it's like it's a smart move when you're on a limited budget mm. is not try and fool everyone that you have the biggest budget in the world and instead sort of embrace things looking sometimes a bit fake mm. um, to give it a sort of uh, not quite real dreamlike feeling. So there's mm. a lot of shots which feel like I'm looking at a model or a CGI thing, but it's never really trying to fool you. Yeah, it doesn't it's, take you out of the moment that it looks like that. No. It it feel it like knows that it's a television show. It's not trying to make you think it's a documentary in any way. Mm. And um because it's uh, uh we I know we said we wouldn't get too specific, but I can't <laughs> help but get kind of specific. I really want yes. to talk about the presence of Lemony Snicket. And how yes. that's woven in, because I wasn't sure, because obviously we saw the trailer, which was just the direct camera address, and I thought, oh, that's cool. And then as it came into the series, and I was like, oh, he's there. They don't acknowledge him, but he is in that world, and he is following their footsteps. And then you cut to the stuff where he's where he's monologuing, uh, which is not quite what he's doing. Um, but you know what we were saying about characters? He feels like the most rounded character Almost mm. like it's fitting that he's the second credit in the credits. Um, but something I the thought that occurred to me, um, because a lot I've seen a couple of people raise eyebrows about the casting with Patrick Warburton, who um, yeah. is I think, why would you cast Kronk from Emperor's New Groove? <laughs> One, because he's um, very funny, too. But what I really like about the casting, and um, you'll have to let me know what you think of this thought is he is got he is he has got this reputation as a very funny person and he's almost got that sort of quality to his voice and what i kind of love is that so oh the joke's going to happen soon we're going to get the punchline because this is a funny guy and it's going to be funny no it's not it's mm. like a punchline that's never going to happen because this is horrible things that happen to these children he but has a like a dry a sad, wit yeah, it's, it's sad as well. I pretty much shed a tear every single time as a Beatrice reference. Oh. And, like, he... Which was my first ever straight ship. Uh, <laughs> to all of us, it's okay. Um, yeah, he performs it so well. It, like, something that's really magical about the books is you... Which the show does completely perfectly is when this book starts, you just assume Lemony Snicket's this random person who for some reason is interested in the Baudelaire orphans and is telling you a story. And as the books get on, you kind of realize, oh, this, that's kind of why he's interested in them. This mm. is why he's telling the story. And um, it's very appropriate that he seems to be always there. Mm. Um, and it, in some, a lot of shows have narrators um, and... It's often used, it often bugs me because I feel it's used as a um, kind of sloppy writing technique to just explain stuff mm. uh, that you don't want to show. Um, and I was worried he'd be very intrusive, but because he's so much guiding the whole show, mm. it never feels, when he sort of, when the camera pans slowly to the right and you realize he's like leaning up against a wall looking sad, it doesn't feel either, oh, here comes the narrator, or yay, here comes the narrator. It just feels like... Here he is. There he is. Yeah, it's just, he's he's the world in a way. Mm. 
Um, That's lovely way. It's really well done. It's it's what it's done. I never thought about how it was done in the film as being wrong, but looking it doesn't feel back, wrong. But it looking back, it this is so obviously the way to do it. Yeah. Um, it's like. It's not quite for, I mean, I think I've seen Lemony Snicket generally described as metafiction because he comments on the story as it goes. Mm. And I, as a theatre person, I feel like I should know more. But he's, yeah, he's the Greek chorus. He's there to tell us the story. But unlike the Greek chorus, he is part of that story. He's not impartial. He's personally invested in these events. Mm. And that's why I love how they talk about it. It's just like, this is a horrible thing, please. And it's in the books. So I was like, please stop watching. Don't listen to this. Don't be here. Okay, fine. You're here. I guess I'll tell you the story. The, the, uh, I think it has it, a, like, the, the theme song has been stuck in my head a lot. Look away. Uh, yeah. Look away. It took me more uh, time than I, I care to admit that, to twig that that was Neil Patrick Harris singing it. And then oh, when I did it, I was like, <laughs> I failed. I failed so hard. But no, I think they're they're brilliant. And when I realised it was changing for mm. like each arc, I was like, oh, oh, yes. And I, um, I can say, it's a shame there aren't more songs. To be fair, there are more songs than I was expecting to get. Like, uh, is it <laughs> yeah. episode one or episode two? Um, it's the count, it's the count, it's the count. I, that was such an yes. earworm. So uh, um, yeah, I want more songs. So like 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 I said, I'm very familiar with the audio books, and they have mm. a different song every. Um, like n- knowing that they're gonna they can have songs in, I'm sort of mm. marking where in the series I think they'll be. I was gonna say the the um, song that closed out the fi- episode A. I was like, oh my god, this is the most perfect thing. Oh my god, this is the thing. And, like, the, and, and it, the lemony was singing as well, and then the children were singing, and I was like, oh. And then Mr. Pogue switched the radio off at the end, and he's like washing it off just like he does everything. And I was like, oh, that's so clever. That song's amazing. Mm. I had lots of feels. I mean, okay, let's fill on just geek out then, because there's a lot. There's so many little you things. Me I, I have, uh, yeah, I have precisely we- zero chill. We will obviously do some criticism, but I, I want to just mention so many things I like. Yeah. And, um, uh, so I actually really love the casting pretty much all the way through. Yep. Um, Monty. Monty. I mean... Uh, Montgomery, just, Montgomery. I lo- and Monty, I love Billy Connolly in, in the Monty's film. Python. Monty's Monty Python. Monty Python. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I, because I love the film... Um, and Billy Connolly's performance in it, as well as others. I was like, I'll be. Re- I wasn't going. Come on, TV series, show me what you've got. It was just like, oh, this is completely different and completely perfect. Yes. And can I mean, we? The, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, and I'm so glad. I think because we've talked in, um, it's in one of our episodes where we talk about um, Fantastic Beasts and how white it feels. This had yeah. none of that uh, to the point where I was noticing in the background. Cool. Would you look how few white people there are in the background? <laughs> but it was no, that was, a, it that was, was a decision I'm very pleased with. It was clearly it was very much like the best actors for the job. But the choices they made with the casting, I I was like, yes, yes. Every time we met a new person, I was like, this is excellent. I have this. I like this person very much. I'm very. I love Mr. Poe. I love Mr. Poe so much. Mm. Um, it just like so. It wasn't. He wasn't how I viewed him in the books. And then he's how I will always view the character now. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is an amazing sort of 
way to do the character. I just he, he I'm glad his presence was felt a bit more than in the books. Yeah. Um, um, it's weird because the only other thing I've seen that actor in was when he was in Buffy and this is so different yeah. and he looks pretty much exactly the same. And I was like, wow. Yes. Acting. It's also like years later and he looks exactly the same, but yeah. also playing a completely different character. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, so because the film covered the first three, um, what I was really excited about with this series um, was the fourth book because mm-hmm. um, that hadn't been adapted yet. Yeah. Um, and the way that it's uh, splicing in other mysteries and things from the future books and putting them earlier mm. um, is very, very appealing to me. And I'm glad they did it. And uh, major spoiler warning now, even though we did do one at the front. Yeah. But the twist with the parents mother and father yeah i was like because i was watching that going okay that is a that's a bold departure choice okay Uh, is this oh and then when it happened and i was like oh oh okay oh and then the final reveal at the academy at the end and i was like oh my god i did not see that coming holy shit oh netflix you clever peoples the um yeah so the I guess because I'm more of a stinking fan. Mm. <laughs> so, like, for seven episodes, I, I, you know, I like seeing those two actors being cool spies and it's fun. Mm-hmm. But it was, like, the one aspect of the adaptation where I was thinking, this, even though it's written by, you know, Daniel Handler and it's all very official, mm. it was the one aspect I felt, this feels very, like we need something new so that fans will like it. And I wasn't mm. quite liking it. And then I like, and then, so when he says the name of the triplets, which is, they're my, among my favorite characters in the books. Mm. So he comes through the door and says, Oh, hi. And I, I do know that, you know, the, their parents and the, you know, sibling died in a fire. Mm. Like it was such a swell of emotions where I was both like, ah, it's a twist. I'm so happy. Oh my God. I'm so sad. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I was literally thinking a scene before, hmm, I wonder who they'll um, cast as the Quagmire triplets. Uh Uh, Like not that I know many kid actors, but I was thinking how I was enjoying the kid actors and how, oh, I guess I have to find sort of like three kids that look like each other. And then they suddenly appear and I was sort of overcome with feelings. Um, I I also really appreciated how they wove into the narrative, the the mother and father, especially like um, with the tail end of um, uh, when when they're they're playing and they're helped with the focusing of the light to start the fire. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's just, oh, oh. Yeah, it made me very happy. Um. I want to talk about how much I love Justice Strauss. Um, and Joan Cusack should just show up in everything. Because she just she makes me cry with every single little she's facial just so movement. Perfect in so many ways. Uh, I thought it was funny that Catherine O'Hara was in it, despite being in the film as well. Yeah. Um, like that's the thing about this adaptation is that I can't think of anything quite like it where you do a new adaptation with a lot of the same people involved mm. quite soon after. Yeah. Um, 
like I do wonder if there was discussions about not even doing the first three books and just kind of assuming people have watched it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm glad they did. I would say that what like one of my criticisms of the show is that um, they're doing 45 minute, two 45 minute episodes for each book. And that'll be very much come in handy when the books start getting longer. But the books are quite slim. And I do feel some scenes go on far too long and uh, jokes kind of go on a little past their welcome. It feels quite slow at the start. But um, it's something uh, I think uh, I, an observation I saw you make either on on Twitter or on Tumblr, which is that's and like with long tapes, that's a problem endemic to Netflix shows because they know yes. they have the captive audience and they have the time to tell the story. They kind of sometimes lose. I don't want to say urgency, and I don't want to say it's lazy, but at the same time, it's like they know they don't have to maybe be as efficient. Yeah, I I think they it just made me appreciate the sort of briskness and editing of the film a bit mm. um whereas as a fan of something you always want i want this super indulgent tv series which covers every single scene in perfect detail and then you sort of see it done and i just was thinking you know the film did this scene better because it just kind of got the point yeah um but that, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> I liked how episode one ended in a little speech about it's better than nothing, mm-hmm. because that's what I keep coming back to. I was going to say, there was a, and there was a few gags about Netflix as well, that I really, yes. like streaming versus movies and stuff like that. And I was there, and the, when they actually did a direct look down the camera about preparing <laughs> to stream, I was just like, oh, they went there. But it's perfect that they went there, because it's the kind of story where they can go there. Yes. But I, I was still just like, uh, fourth wall breaking humour like that always kills me I'm just a, g- a giggling fit by the end of it but yeah there's, there's a lot of humour in the series where the joke is we all know that this is a very contrived thing they're saying mm. um, I'm thinking about a bit when um, Justice Strauss is saying oh I bought all these books but I can't read them and I bought all this stuff but I don't know how to mix you know um, there's just a lot of as a kid, it was just really nice when there was jokes that were assuming that you knew. Yeah, assuming what, you got the joke. Like, yeah, and were I just you know, I mean the, the the as an adult now watching the show, I um, sometimes do feel like okay, I get it, you know. But then, as a kid, I just felt very much talked at my level, and I was very appreciative and I really hope kids are liking the show and yeah. I hope there's lots of um sensitive young boys who move get away from their wells to come and watch the uh, <laughs> this new series and lots of slightly dark girls and boys who um and children that like to chew on things yep and children who are neither boys or girls hmm. um I suppose before because I'm aware that we can't just talk forever and this is the first time we've spoken about it so it's going to be far too easy for you and I to go into our own little spiral of netting out but we're aware of you guys listening so um for our first oh, time yeah. we've got we ha- we have had interaction with our listener base and we are very excited yeah I'm very sorry that I didn't um give the call out for submissions earlier um because I've only really given people 24 hours um 
but we only really decided to do this podcast uh, a few, uh, maybe a day or two ago. Um, do you want me to read it out? Yeah. Or is it better that you do? Because I'm on Skype. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Um, we have a question from Rem, uh, Jet Grind Jaguar on Tumblr. And it reads, what are your thoughts on the hench person of indeterminate gender, as they are called in the credits? The book describes them as looking as, ne- uh, looking as neither like a man nor a woman, and I got the sense that descriptor was meant to mark them as a villain, or was maybe a joke at non-binary people's expense. I feel that the Netflix version does the character better, giving them interesting dialogue and not calling attention to their gender presentation. Great first episode. Regards, Ram. Thank you, Ram. Yay, great first episode. <laughs> I assume that's about our show and not about the Netflix show, but maybe it is. Yeah, <laughs> both good. But yeah, so um, as our resident non-binary person, that is me. Do you feel like it was a joke at your expense? No, and and this was an, I went back and sort of read a little bit about the character itself because um, in uh, like in the wikis because I wasn't sure. I think I was looking for information because before I knew about I hadn't clocked in the credits because Netflix does the thing where it shuns it off to the side, so I hadn't mm. seen what the character's name was. One, with regards to being neither man or woman, I assumed that was probably done for the sake of balance within Olaf's troop of hench people because there are the two white-faced ladies and there's the bald man and the hook-handed man. And then you've got a person of indeterminate gender. So I was like, hey, balance, I can be down with that. But I found, because I didn't know any of that, watching it, I was like, huh, that's a, oh, okay, oh, and then I was like, "Oh, this is very cool to me," because I was just and um, that character as well. Because when we first saw the character dressed up in the nurse's outfit or disguise slash costume, I was like, "Hmm." But then I realised sort of as it went on, "Oh no, this this person isn't presenting as a specific gender." And then they got the line. I want to say with Wally, the the guy, the waiter guy at the restaurant mm. in the lake episodes and I was like who says about we don't care what your gender is and I was like hello hello <laughs> oh but I was just but yeah the way that character is presented um in the in the TV show played by a presumed uh cis guy who was in Jurassic World and that's where I recognized his face <laughs> from but I was like this is a really cool thing and it's well you know Okay, it's the uh, one of the bad guys, but I love that troop of characters. I think Olaf's troop are awesome. The old ladies scare the crap out of me. Like they legit scare me. Those old ladies. So, Can, so when the show got announced, mm-hmm. the two things I was incredibly worried about, yeah, was the hench person of indeterminate gender, um, and. Uh, Olaf as Shirley, which we'll get onto later. Yes, we will. Um, and so in the book, I think it's really bad. It's they're mostly described as being incredibly fat to the point where you can't tell what their gender is. Mm. Um, it's more. It's much more. The 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 hench people in general in the books don't really talk that much as far as I can remember. Okay. They're very much not given any kind of character. Um, and I think they're a lot more sinister. They're much more 
Olaf's total accomplices in evil. Um, the way the show handled it, and, and I was very impressed because I was, the way I would have handled it is probably just not have the character in and do something else, which mm-hmm. is, I think, is the wrong way. Yeah. The way the show does the entire acting troupe, I feel is very interesting because I think it's very clear that they are not evil in their souls, but they are very much taken in by Olaf's um, charisma. Mm. Um, I think all of them have reasons for why you can imagine they find getting acting roles very tough. Mm. So you have an actor who doesn't want to play like men or women, but then you have, you know, two actresses who only ever do things as a pair and a man with an incredibly deep voice and a man who doesn't have any hands and they must find getting acting jobs very tricky, except for Encounter Love's acting troupe, as long as they do his other, you know, dastardly things and don't really question it. And as the show goes on, I really felt that especially the henchperson of Indeterminate Gender was really questioning what they were doing. Mm. Um, there's a bit on the boat with Aunt Josephine when he, or she, or they, they. Uh, um, uh, sort of just kind of realizing to themselves, I think that's actually a really bad thing to do. Oh, okay. Um, they seem like they've gone in too deep. Yeah. Um, and they haven't got much else. And so one of the things I really liked about the way they handled the character is in the books, the whole question of their gender is something that Lemony Snicket and the characters put on the character. Mm. It's us not, like, I find you disgusting because I can't tell what gender you are. Is kind of how it's written. Um, and I think we've come a long way since the books were written and I really appreciated that their, uh, their gender was something that I feel like was the character's, um, choice, choice, but not, not necessarily the gender as a choice, but you know, like it was, it was something that they were exerting and no one was. That's what I meant. Like it was their, their, their gender expression. Yes. And it wasn't ever something that was made to seem scary in a or way strange. it was the thing that yeah it was in, in fact it felt like the thing that humanized them mm. um and the thing with the sort of the hook-handed man as well i remember in the film and the books it's constantly it's scary because they have hooks for hands and even though it plays on a lot of the similar kind of jokes and tropes the fact that he doesn't have hands is again something that kind of humanizes him in a way Mm. Um, because these characters are are given way more personality and dialogue than in the books i I love them i think they're great they're all really funny Mm. um i actually really like the hook-handed man i thought he had really good comic timing (laughs) one of my favorite scenes with the troupe other than the song which i do delight in is when we get the flashback to Josephine meeting Captain Sham and the five of them are just in the background, like adding to this <laughs> conversation, like providing background. I, mm. I thought that was one of the funniest things I have. Some of the best writing. I was like, man, this is, this is comedy gold. I, and I, so, thea- so theatrical. And well. so theatrical. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I would love to be handled in the most wonderful way. Mm. but I kind of really appreciate that instead of 
um, backing away and erasing and not really mentioning that character. They instead went forward with that character in a way yeah, and just made it an aspect of them. Yeah, props to Daniel Handler to, for learning and changing and improving because I was pleased to see he's responsible for most of the teleplays for the, for the series. So I noticed there were a couple that he didn't do, but for the most part he has. So, you know, mm. just let this be a lesson, folks. Like just because you've got something wrong or in the past doesn't mean you can't improve and do better and learn just like Hamish and I strive to do all <laughs> yeah, the time. That's true. Are very aware that we're going to get stuff wrong and we, we strive to do better. Though, um, yeah. So I liked them and I liked how the character uh, was handled. In- well, I, I, I was just going to say one thing is that mm. um, I feel like obviously we, have, we will mention and talk about um, the queer coding of villains. Mm-hmm. I will take a queer villain over a queer coded villain. Yeah, I saw that. When you can you can have a, a villain who is in some way LGBT, but if it's canon and if it's there, then they're not being evil because of that. It's not a, it's not a little trait used to make us dislike them. Mm-hmm. I was going to um, say. Um... To further this point, I found it earlier and I read it uh, not long before we started recording. The Advocate has got an article, uh, Lemony Snicket has the gay TV villains we've been waiting for. And it's talking about <laughs> breaking the mould in, fam- in family entertainment by introducing queer characters. Um, and obviously the casting of Neil Patrick Harris, who's very publicly out as a, a mm. central character, albeit a villain. But it's a good article um, and I, I recommend reading it. The picture they chose to you to illustrate it, however, is uh, Olaf as Shirley with um, Doctor Orwell, which is mm-hmm. the one of my big problems that we're about to we've been circling for a little bit, and I am going to dive onto in a second. But um, it, it talks about uh, the hench person of indeterminate gender, um, and I do. Before we talk about the thing that makes me sad and angry, so we want to talk about the thing that makes us very happy. About what Sarah and Charles. Charles. <laughs> okay, so Sarah and Charles are antagonists in a way. They get in. They they cause the Baudelaire's trouble, but then pretty much every character in the show can be put in yeah. that camp. Um, Sarah and Charles are partners. There's a very funny bit. I've got. Yes, to say, I have partners. it. I have it in front of me. The bit of dialogue. It, it was highlighted so, in the article. This is what's quite funny. In the books, it is very strongly hinted. Mm-hmm. And it is constantly, they make joke not jokes, but they sort of constantly talk about the dual meaning of partners. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, This is where we talk about mild spoilers for future books. In a later book, we do see them again, and they are on holiday together. Um, and they do hold hands in one bit. Um, and in the Beatrice Letters, which is a Lemony Snicket sort of tie-in novel, um, in the coded sort of stuff you see, I do hope um, C realises he's too good for S's love. Um, and so there's there's lots of... It's, it's there. But I really appreciated that in the moment they're introduced, Lemony Snicket basically addresses... 
Yeah. In fact, we, yes. partners can mean several things. It can mean two. It can mean two people who own a lumber mill together or a cupcakery. And now, with the advent of more progressive cultural mores, not to mention certain high court rulings, it could also mean. Cuts to a, I do all the work. He irons my clothes. To which Charles responds, "I also cook your omelets." The definitions are not mutually exclusive. And it's just like when in a in a previous scene they talked about how the de- the definitions of children and trespassers are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So we I actually got an ask saying, "Oh, do you think in season two Sarah and Charles will become a couple?" They're and already a couple. I was like, "They are, and not in like a Dumbledore way, not in a fandom shipping way." The joke is that they're partners and partners. Yeah, that's the story. And I love them. And I love oh, the Reese Darby. Oh, he was just precious. I love Reese Darby anyway. I have very complex, deep feelings about Reese Darby. And mm-hmm. he, this was a, a wonderful role for him. Yeah. I loved that Sir was still a threatening, kind of powerful antagonist. I loved that none of the jokes were like, it, the, the joke wasn't. Um, Charles is silly for being infatuated and doing everything for him. I felt that Violet was constantly trying to get him to talk to his partner about... Yeah, to be assertive. Like, That's what the gag is. Yeah, like, it isn't that he does this, it's that he sort of doesn't... Yeah, I, I, I was preparing for a kind of Mr. Burns-Smithers uh, mm. relationship when it's... No, they are both in love with each other, mm-hmm. but... Sir is much meaner um, yeah. and yeah. has more of an iron fist on the company and has taken it away from his business partner, who is also his actual partner. Yeah. I don't know. I was just very pleased. I was like, not, I either completely forgot about those characters in the book or just that aspect of them. And whereas I didn't know the books at all. So I was just like, oh, this is just, this is lovely because I was watching it, I was like, Hamish and I are probably going to end up talking about this. And then those episodes came along and I was like, yes. And um, <laughs> then you messaged me going, I've seen the final episodes and I have so much more to say. And I was like, I suspected this would be the case. Yeah, I can I can be more... I just know, I was just very happy. And I loved the little bit at the end when he's talking about Sir and how I'm going to go find him because I know he's like not very it doesn't sort of like things aren't always black and white yeah and it was just really nice because that's how i feel about lgbt representation is there's so much pressure to make the especially i feel i don't know i feel a lot with gay characters they have to be the perfect perfect people yeah so often the flaw of gay characters is they love their kids too much (sighs) or they're too clingy and they're too they're too in love um so I don't know. I found I, I was just so happy. Yeah, no, it was, it was very nice. refreshing. It was really refreshing because it was taking characters in a book implied to be something, and, and in they, the adaptation, you imply it more to the you like confirm it. I mean, something um, we I, I know you like to cite as um, a, a thing is a can straight people ignore this? Is like is and I'm going to say if you're too, if you're being purposely oblivious but I think it would be a, a concentrated effort to, to deny that. Whereas mm. it's just like, no, it's quite clear that's the nature of their relationship and that makes me happy. So. And so, I mean, one of the things is he full on think like Charles 
full on thinks they're doing a kiss moment and Sir doesn't. He doesn't notice. Mm. And that's not a joke in, oh, he's really misunderstood their relationship. It's a joke in, Sir, it is not appreciating. He's not appreciating his perfect husband. Yeah. Oh, he deserves (laughs) so much better. (laughs) He deserves so much better. (sighs) Anyway. Anyway. Those two episodes also have something that you want to talk about and I want to talk about. Yeah. We might have slightly... Well, we'll have different views because yes. I've come from books, but yeah, um, you go. I don't know whether I quickly want to talk about how um, the Baudelaire children and their subversion of gender roles before I start getting on my angry space. Oh, yes, actually. Because we have that great thing um, in the Reptile Room episodes where um, Violet gets called out on picking a lock and how nice girls shouldn't know how to do that kind of thing. And Klaus is just like, my sister is a nice girl and she knows how to do all sorts of things. Like, yes, good. And then there's the bit in, when they're with Aunt Josephine and she's bought them presents that don't suit them. And Violet's to Klaus like, oh, you're left with a doll. Um, and Klaus is just like, plenty of boys enjoy playing with dolls. And it's like, yes, like we have a quiet, we have a quiet, like, I don't want to say more submissive character, but... Um, who's into books and then you've got Violet who's very proactive and with inventing and engineering which is so frequently seen as a very male dominated field and it there's uh, a very subtle possible joke mm-hmm. which is definitely the you know reading too much into it but this is the podcast to do it mm-hmm. there's a joke in the miserable male yeah when it cuts to three people who are very who are quite old and Lemony Snicket's talking about it felt like the Baudelaire's had been there for a hundred years. Mm. And the joke is you're meant to think that's them. And then it pans to the right and says, but it had only been like a few days. But playing Sonny is a beardy mm-hmm. sort of man. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to read too much into that. Um but I thought that was an interesting choice that it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that Sonny grew up and got stubble and <laughs> looked like, yeah. I don't know. It was a very, very tiny little bit, but I, I kind of felt there was a lot of references. It, I don't know. Yeah. I also, um, oh, my brain just disappeared on the point I was going to make. Crap. It'll come back, I'm sure. There's just a lot of... Uh, bits in the series I felt mm. which seemed to be coming from a very nice place and um, yeah in many ways it was refreshing yeah. and I remembered my point and it's just a normalisation of people calling their siblings siblings because mm. and because it makes sense because when Violet is talking about Klaus and Sonny she would use siblings but even sometimes Klaus doesn't just say my sister's and yeah. I just like, it's just for for somebody that I, I call my sister sibling anyway, because that's just part of the thing. But even before I, I came out as non-binary, um, I've always preferred to be called sibling. And I, I just like the normalization of that. And I'm like, yes, bring it into the vernacular because, you know, nobody can be offended by that. It's great. But now I've got to talk about the thing that makes me uh, less happy. And that is... Uh, as we've been circled about a couple of times, Olaf as Shirley. Now, narratively, this doesn't rank rankle with me because, like, Olaf is an actor. His whole shtick is inhabiting these characters. 
um, you know, to get close to the Baudelaire's and ergo get close to their money and, and go from there. But my problem and where this bothers me is sort of how it's presented visually and some of the choices of dialogue they've made because at the end of the day, regardless of the narrative, the punchline for an audience is going, that is a man dressed as a woman, isn't it funny? And that is a narrative trope that needs to die. And I appreciate that it's in the books and there wasn't really a way to get around that. But, and I appreciate that Olaf is a bad actor. So the whole point is it's a bad portrayal of being a woman. But there is comedy, at the end of the day, it's comedy being derived from a a man trying to pass as a woman. And that is inherently transphobic and it's something that rankles me in I just it makes me angry and I, I especially in children's media it's important and after we, we talked about the the hench person of indeterminate gender and how that was like, oh cool whereas this was just like oh this again so from memory mm-hmm. compared to the books I think the show does it better. But then in the books, you're imagining it and you don't have the visual. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, But it was an aspect I was worried about. Um, I am worried about some of Count Olaf's future disguises. Oh, And uh, yeah, but that's a fog memory from when I was a kid and what didn't think about things being problematic. Yeah. Um, The thing is, I, I... I I want them to do it and I want them to call it out as not just being a terrible disguise, but a terrible idea for a disguise. Okay. Um, and the thing about Shirley is, I mean, we'll be talking about drag in the mm. future and how like it or not, it is a part of LGBT history and culture. Very much so. Um, I think, um, can be done a cat can be a wonderful beautiful form of expression um but it's very yes it is very often used for comedy on television for the pure it's funny because it's a man in dress i think i'd be happier with this all there's one line that bugs me which is when violet says um that's not even a woman Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like saying that's Count Olaf should be enough. Yeah, and I think when the character does so many disguises, one of them I feel inevitably would be a woman. Yeah, or a few. I think I I think there's another woman later on. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think it's just because it the Shirley disguise feels like such an OTT pastiche, and I appreciate that all the characters are kind of like that. And when next to Dr. Orwell, and you, you, it's like it is Dr. Orwell's clothes that he's wearing as part of his disguise. I don't know. I think yeah. you said that line like, of violets that bothered you. And I think there was, I think it's where Shirley is explaining to Sir about her desire to have children. And I think he says something, and there's a, a retort about 
appearance or not looking like a typical woman. There's something about along though. I can't remember the exact line of dialogue, but the defence Shirley used was an argument I've heard used um, when people, when trans women are talking about being accepted and things like that, and pass or part and about maybe about passing. And I was like, and now that sounds like a joke. Mm. Is that? I mean. She is a definitely a caricature on the same level as Captain Sham and yeah. um, Stefano. Mm. Um, it's again in a weird way because he only really does one female character. It then gets the embodiment of how, like, you get a sea captain and a, um, you know, reptile expert and a secretary and then a. A woman <laughs> sector. I mean, you know, like I just kind of, I kind of wish there was just a few more little bits of lines about this is Count Olaf's ridiculous idea about women, mm-hmm. and um, I almost think I wish it kind of looked a bit worse. Like he has like a really flawless wig and things. Like, yeah. um, I kind of wish his disguises were even worse because they actually are quite well done. Yeah. In a way. No, I th- I, I know uh, what you mean. Uh Yeah, I don't know. It from memory I feel it's handled a little better. But mm. then I I am obviously um not the one suffering from having bad depictions of <laughs> this in the media. Yeah. Um it did make me uncomfortable, and it was the thing I was dreading the most about the series. Mm. Um, and I came out of it feeling slightly less uncomfortable than I expected to. Mm-hmm. That's possibly not a comp- that's not a compliment to the series. Yeah, um, I want. I suppose one thing one thing to applaud about Olaf Shirley disguise um, is that he doesn't find it demeaning. No, that's that's again, and that's I, kind of. It, there's never any question about what that means to him. And he's like, he's perfectly comfortable putting on the lipstick. And, and he says about, I forgot how difficult it is running in high heels. It's n- And like none of the henchmen, ever, nobody ever addresses it as weird that he's choosing to do that. And I suppose no, that I, I found, okay, well, it's a joke that it's a, it's a clear, it's a, it's a guy dressed as a woman, but Nobody in text is mocking that or deriding that choice. Oh, no. Actually, I remember the line which made me feel kind of okay with it. Okay. When, I mean, yeah, I I do agree with all these things, but something I appreciated, which I feel was kind of a line put in to say that it's okay to do this, is when Klaus says, it reminds me of when father did the same thing for a party. Yeah. And it's not, it, they do kind of laugh, but it's in a kind of nostalgic, yeah. oh, I remember our father doing this. No, I, it, agreed, like it, agreed. It was kind, it, it was a way of kind of covering, we aren't putting any shame on what Olaf is doing in theory. It's other the than fact disguising that he is a to, villain. <laughs> he is a villain. Not yeah. that dressing as a woman makes you a villain. Yes. Okay, cool. Which I feel is kind of, a thing about Olaf and the troop. I mean, I, we're not going on to it because we're an LGBT podcast, but there is uh, discussions to be had about Olaf's villain coding in other ways. Yes. Um, the fact that in the book, it never says he has 
um, any kind of enlarged nose, but in both adaptations, that's yeah a thing he has to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, even though Daniel Handler may be Jewish, I feel people can still uh, being Jewish doesn't contrib- prevent you from being anti-Semitic yeah, you, or contributing to yes, it. Just in the same way that you can be part of the queer community and be homophobic, transphobic. Being a part of a community doesn't make you immune Mm. from perpetuating um, and making mistakes. Yes. The the series has its uh, uncomfortable elements Mm -hmm. aside from what it it wants to be uncomfortable. Yeah. See, I've seen some criticism in the sort of Tumblr tag saying, I don't like this show because... A, ma- a man tries to marry a young girl. And while that can obviously, you cannot like it if that's triggering to you. Mm-hmm. That's. It's the, sh- the show is not saying that's a good thing. <laughs> it's very much awful and very yeah, frightening. But definitely. Um, I also um, appreciate the weight uh, of which when Olaf hits Klaus, the weight that that's given. Uh- like in that moment, yes. what's in um, because it's one of I say, uh, the critiques I've seen levied against Neil Patrick Harris is Olaf, and generally is he feels less sinister or less dangerous, he feels more like an oaf. But I was just going to mm. say, when he gets those darker beats, those heavier beats, I feel that they're more effective for it, in a yes, way. Yes, and actually, I, I feel it's a very important. Uh, thing to start making villains who are charismatic Mm. enjoyable people because the kind of villains who always act like villains and you know the villain straight away Mm -hmm. don't exist in the real world as much and shouldn't be like i think part of what makes olaf so scary is his way to charm and entertain people Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite bits from the books, which I'm so glad got included, yeah. is when all the lights go out at the play and he kind of whispers in Violet's ear about how he's going to tear them limb from limb and mm. find them. In the book, it really sticks with the characters sort of forever that he kind of ingrains in them the idea they'll never be able to escape and never feel safe anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the scariest things about Count Olaf is he's kind yeah. of someone you don't want to look away from. Yeah. As, yeah it's that um, moment later where the, the, um, where Lemony is talking about fear and rational fears. And um, mm. yeah, they're talking about how it's rational for the children to be terrified of Olaf, but they still keep fighting around. I don't know, they're just being proactive and stuff and it made me very happy. Yes. I mean, I I, I, I agree with the... Um, disappointments with Shirley because that's what I was fearing going in. Mm. Um, the fact that I I do feel it was handled slightly better than I was expecting probably says more about what I was expecting <laughs> than the show. Um, and yeah, I hope going forward they'll um, continue to improve on the problematic elements in the books. Yes, that's what I hope. Yeah. I do have one final question for you. Oh. What kind of guardian would you be to the Baudelaire orphans? 
this is a horrible question. I'm like, well, I'm not an adult, so I like to think and listen. And I'm like, Jade, you're 30. You, you, I hate <laughs> to break it to you, darling, but I like to think that I would be better at listening because so often in my life, I feel like I haven't been listened to, but I also have this problem where I need to sort of take charge and look after people. So I'm not always very good at listening. I did kind of figure out what my thing might kind of be, though. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a theatre and the kids are not going to trust me because they've learned not to trust actors. <laughs> but... But you'll show them the way. Yeah, I know. I like the idea of teaching them about costumes uh, and stuff like that and how theatre is not a bad thing and about stories. And I think, like, Klaus would know, have read lots of plays and, like, Violet would be good at fixing up the tech and Sunny would be able to help build sets with those amazing teeth. And I was just like, I really like the thought of that. And also theatre's a perfect death trap, so when I inevitably get murdered, it would be very cool. (laughs) stage door <laughs> but yeah like there's a lot oh like a, a literal bear because i like excellent pursued by a bear i feel like there's a lot of good opportunities there for death but uh, for deaths um but yeah i i get the feeling it would be something theatery like i would be like the manager of a theater that's slightly ramshackle and falling down and just very I could, I, passionate I really, and wordy and i can really visualize you not knowing their history and wanting to force Violet to be in a play (laughs) and that being quite upsetting to her. And then you show her about being a techie and lighting and rigging up the stage. And she becomes very enthused by that. And um, I don't know, mate, that makes me, I think that's a really sweet idea. And the idea that maybe you can teach the Baudelaire's how to do disguises that fill Count Olaf. That would be fun. Make become better actors. Um, What about you? What kind of guardian would you be? Well, I find it very unlikely that the Baudelaire parents didn't know a couple of gay bears who <laughs> would be very, very happy to take in um, some orphans. I feel like Justin and I would be um, a... Well, I guess I could use art as a sort of idea. Maybe I'd want to sort of teach them to be great painters and... Mm-hmm. I'm sure Lemony Snicket would have opinions about artists yeah. <laughs> and sculptors. Um, I'm not really sure. I just have the I have the visual of um, Justin and I sort of raising three little kids of our own, um, and then dying horribly and tragically. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I asked that question, but I don't really know myself. Yours was too good. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to overshine. Sometimes lights shine yeah. too brightly. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to uh, uh, like rapidly move to our close. Um, <laughs> um, as yeah, always, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, we'd like to thank uh, Gray Moller, Audio Overlord, and Master the Soundways for our theme music and helping produce the podcast. He's going to have fun with this episode because we've had some slight technical hiccups, but hopefully they haven't <laughs> um, impacted um, you, our listeners' enjoyment. Um, and if you want to check out more of his work, you can go to uh, grahamwaller.com. Thank you for everyone who has um, gotten back to us, who has tweeted at us, who has retweeted. Um, 
We're so glad that people are listening and people are enjoying the show. If you haven't got in contact with us yet, but would like to do so, you can do it via email, boxnotincluded at gmail.com. And we are boxnotincluded on both Twitter and Tumblr. And we have individual Twitters. Uh, I am at Hamish Steele. And I am at Jade Oxford Rose. And we also now have a Facebook group. So if you'd like to uh, come and join us over there, just search for Box Not Included. And uh, that's it for this time. So until we meet again, I'm Jade Rose. (laughs) I'm Hamish Steele. And don't let anyone box you in. (laughs) 